Welcome to the Canny Conversations podcast, conversations with a cause with social entrepreneur Safraz Ali. He coined a phrase that describes what he does as the mad entrepreneur. That's make a difference entrepreneurship. As well as being the author of the Canny Bites books, Saf's business interests cover health and social care, business and corporate events, as well as him being the CEO of Pathway Group, a welfare to work and skills provider. In each episode, we have a special guest joining SAF in discussion with journalist and broadcaster Adrian Kibler. This week, SAF is once again joined by journalist, radio presenter and trade unionist Tony Adams. They talk about how the balance of power in the workplace has changed. So let's join their conversation. Hello, and it's time again to captivate your curiosity cannily. Yes, it's Canny Conversations back again. And... um, We've got a troublemaker with us today, haven't we, Seth? We have, absolutely. He's such a brilliant guest. He's, he's caused us he's a, a lot of trouble. And I'll tell you why he's caused us a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> a previous podcast we did with Tony Adams, the broadcaster and the journalist. Yes. And, you know, we've had so much feedback, haven't we, Seth? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so many people think, well, you know, there are so many further questions. We're going to have to cover some of those off in this podcast but before we do that there's there's another topic that we want to talk about fairly briefly but we'll give it a fair hearing and that's to talk about something which uh, in the old days on uh, broadcasters would have seen covered by people they used to call industrial relations correspondents that's a term Tony isn't it we haven't heard for some time it's not something you hear these days is it it's almost a bygone era it's a it's a flashback <laughs> to the past but we're going to talk very briefly initially about this relationship between workers and bosses, perhaps there isn't a distinction anymore. Everybody seems to be a colleague these days. <laughs> well, you know, whoever they work for, there's no more workers and bosses. Um, Saf is obviously a, a businessman, an employer. Tony has, oh, and I think may still be a, a trade union representative. Absolutely. So I don't want to present this as a us and them because I, I don't think it is. But Saf, you're a young man, but you've got enough years under the belt to have seen how things have perhaps changed. Just give us give us a feel of the, how the landscape has changed in terms of, to use an old-fashioned phrase, industrial relations. Thank you, Adrian. I mean, I've not been called a young man for, <laughs> for, a, for, a, for, for a long while, but thank, thank, thank you for that. Uh, you're absolutely right. The landscape is different. Landscape has changed. And it's a, it's a lot of the changes are the consequences of the economy in some aspects of it, in, in terms of the international economy, the local economy, and how that shift has happened. There's fewer larger companies. There's obviously less and less of members who join up to be part of trade unions. And we've gone away from being a lifelong sort of career anymore. So it's no longer a job for life. People are transient. They're moving from one job to another. They sometimes upskilling, reskilling, changing jobs. You know, sometimes you're a broadcaster maybe for two years or three years, and then you may have a change. And you might decide, you know, I, I, I want to you know, do something myself or I want to do something different. And look, we've got a lot more choice, you know, it's easier to to move around it's easier to move companies as well and i think people are no longer boxed in to say you know i'm this particular profession and i'm going to be that profession for life there's less and less of that you know we still have it to a certain level i've seen people who are sort of teachers and have been teachers for life but what i'm finding is that 
their career spans are traditionally less years now, two, three, four years. People tend to move from one company to another, even even in some cases moving completely, as I said, in terms of a completely different field. So definitely landscape has changed. But what you've got is more SME businesses now. So more people working for the smaller business, more uh, more people now work for smaller businesses than they do larger businesses. And uh, smaller businesses has a bigger role in the economy and Predominantly, that is different skill sets as well. So, yeah, definitely landscape has changed. And landscape would you, would you agree, Tony, that the, the landscape has changed a lot? And that as someone who, you know, is a support, supporter of trade unions, how, how well do you think the trade union movement has adapted to the change? Yeah, that's interesting, Adrian. Um, as chair of the National Union of Journalists, the Birmingham Commentary Branch, 700, I think, uh, colleagues in the sector Look, I'm, I'm a trade unionist activist, something I always have been. But let's just backtrack a little bit, of course, uh, the uh, the era of Thatcher mm-hmm. and uh, the way she quashed the movement, of course, with the, the, the miners' strike, which is to distance memory. But incidentally, it'll be uh, June this year. It'll be the 50-year celebration of the uh, Coke Works in Saltley, uh, where masses of thousands of people came to protest and, of course, show solidarity for the workers. So the trade unionist movement is massive. It's huge, of course, from my perspective. It's uh, there to protect the workers' rights. uh, And that's really what it's about because things do go wrong in the workplace. And it's for the union to step in and make sure they're actually there for the the worker, for him or her, and making sure they get the best deal. Saf, would you entirely agree that Mrs Thatcher destroyed the unions? I mean, let's talk specifically about what Tony was alluding to, the miners' strike. Was it Mrs. Thatcher that destroyed the NUM or was it the fact that, you know, coal was an old-fashioned fossil fuel that got replaced by cleaner and cheaper fuel? So was it a consequence more of the way that world is changing rather than any government policy, do you think? I think the, the sh- there was a shift anyway in terms of uh, moving away from big government to uh, a smaller government. So I think the economy was struggling in terms of tax take you know, less and less people contributing, uh, more unemployed. You know, we had streets of unemployment. Uh, you know, the job centres were busier than ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had, to a certain extent, clashes of personalities. And uh, sometimes it's the middle where where the answer is. It's not one way or the other. It's it's, it's the centre that where the answer is. And sometimes you can go too far out. And from my perspective, it became a personality and a, and, and a positioning uh, and sometimes, yes, yeah, you know, there's a shift in movement. Yes, there's an economy, world economy changing, power was changing. Uh, you know, we, I went to school where we often didn't have heating. We often didn't have, we were sent home mm-hmm. and we missed, you know, many, I mean, at the time we loved it really. <laughs> I mean, at the time we loved it. You know, we missed out on our education. My father was a member of a trade union. Uh, in my early days, I was a member of a trade union myself, partly because it was an element of they're our go-to, they're the ones who are protecting us, and it's a demoness culture. Mm. I think it's less and less a demoness culture now, should be, hopefully, and uh, we've, we've changed. And it's it's only because we've had that time that we've lived in, they lived up, we've, we've experienced it, we can understand the power of, of a union, the power of collective people getting together. Younger generation these days don't understand it. They don't understand why they would pay their subscription, what the benefit is, and they're thinking, you know, there's no ben, you know, there's no benefit to that. Tony, we've we've agreed, I think, that there has been a change in landscape, and I think we've agreed that there's a change in the balance of power, perhaps from a situation, you know, 40, 50 years ago when you know, some people might have said that 
unions were too powerful. But do you feel that that balance has changed too far and has left too many people vulnerable? Let's talk, both of you, Safa and Tony, about the gig economy, for example. One view of the gig economy is that it gives people flexibility, it enables them to fit their working life around their the other factors, you know, the family and, and what they want to do in the leisure time. And, and, and the alternative view of the gig economy is that it leaves huge numbers of people vulnerable to low wages, poor conditions, high levels of insecurity. So, Tony, it's moved too far, hasn't it? Well, let, let, let's be very clear, Adrian. We, when we talk about the gig economy, we're talking about zero-hour contracts, aren't we? And that really is the at the helm of uh, of most of the contracts on the gig economy. Uh, there's just so much uncertainty, as we all know. Uh, we've just gone through COVID. We've uh, seen furlough, the furlough scheme come through as well. Uh, some people have benefited. Most people haven't for whatever reason because of the compliance and the governance at certain companies or certain uh, corporations that wasn't already set up there. Uh, so you've got the what I would call the working class man almost at the beck and call of the big corporations and his or her rights almost been quashed. You agree, Seth? I, I think you've also got another perspective, which is people have got a choice. And, you know, you've, we've got much many more contractors out there who've gone into setting up personal service companies, contracting now, having a lifestyle type business. So it depends on the skill set. So if you've got a higher skill set, if you're in a position where you can actually sell your services in a way, you could package it as a company, you've got more choice. You know, Tony, you, you know, you're, you're at a position where you can potentially work for four or five different uh, employers, different uh, organizations, work from what to one station, you can do your own thing as well. And you've got that choice because you are, you're, you've got the knowledge, you've got the experience, you've got the skill set, but somebody at a lower down in terms of, you know, if it's more manual work or labor work, they have less choice. So in some aspects of the gig economy works because that is about choice that is about a lifestyle business and the people who've you know who are in terms of it contractors a lot of them are contractors they are they they're selling their services per day per hour uh, or per job and and it's as i think we're, what we're talking about in terms of the gig economy we automatically think the zero hour contracts we automatically think the the individual that's working for the large distribution house, the retailers, those sort of organisations, the care sector you know, you know, is another one yeah. which is all about zero hours. Yeah, absolutely, Saf. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting area, isn't it? The care workers, and over, over a number of years, we've seen this in Birmingham, haven't mm-hmm. we? You know, uh, fighting for the rights, a minimum wage, making sure they're recognised for their services. But let's also go back, and I, I come back to COVID, two years. Even in, in the broadcasting sector, many a journalist, many a broadcasters having to work from home. So mm. having the studio set up, et cetera, et cetera, making sure that's being done there. Um, and almost now to a stage where a lot of people have got used to working from home. So Mrs. Smith with two children going to school, it's become almost a lifestyle in itself. And now, of course, being called back to the office. Well, there is no office because we've let a lot of people go. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been a double-edged sword as, as far as I'm concerned. When you spoke a few minutes ago, Tony, you talked about the gig economy in terms of zero-hours contracts. But, of course, it's more than that, isn't it? You know, and, and let's bring ourselves a little bit back to your world and my world, which is journalism and broadcasting. You know, a lot of journalists are freelancers. Absolutely. And I, I can honestly say within the NUJ union, I think 85% of our members are actually freelance. You're absolutely right. So bringing us back to that topic and picking up on some of the things that, that our listeners have been 
talking about uh, and rising with us. And I want to come back to the issue that we kind of finished with last time, which was trust. Saf, we get our information um, from all sorts of different sources these days, a lot of it from social media. Do you trust the information that you get from social media? Yeah, <laughs> I think we could talk about this topic for a, for, yeah. for a while. And uh, I think uh, to put everything into social media or uh, as in bad, I think that's not something that I agree with. I use social media for my information. Twitter uh, is a particular tool that I tend to use and it's moved away in terms of even how it describes itself from being a social media tool to a news tool. There's a lot more debate, there's conversation there's viewpoints that you have, you know, it's, some, it's like, you know, some viewpoints that you disagree with, some you agree with, some you sort of probably would, you know, meet in the middle to a certain certain level. And that's how I would see social media. I've, you know, for example, today I've I found out the, in terms of the uh, MP for our local area, Eddington MP, I found out first on social media mm. that that happened rather than the news. So it depends on the source of the information rather than the channel itself. Uh, often, so you know, you know, where's that source coming from, as opposed to maybe a person. We also know there's a lot of content out there which is uh, paid promotions. We also know there's a lot of content out there which is particularly the authority may not be there. You know, we, we've got people who are positioning themselves to first to be the first, as opposed to be right. And it's all it's our chase to be the first that sometimes worries me mm. that that's necessarily not the, the best news or the right or the right news. Well, I think we're weaving two topics together, and yeah. I think that's that's what we want to try to do on this this business, Tony. You're a member of the National Union of Journalists. I am, and so am I. Um, I'm your boss. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a member of the National Union of Journalists, and as a, as a member of the National Union of Journalists, uh, as we know, there is a certain code of conduct that we have to follow in terms of the way that we behave with people, in the way that we report things. Um, there's a lot of people out there who call themselves journalists, but they're no more journalists than I'm a plumber. D- d- does that enrage you that there are people who are pretending to be professional journalists? But they've got no training, they've got no qualification, they've probably not studied the law, they've probably not studied things like how you properly report things. And doesn't it annoy you, Saf, as well, as a consumer, when you pick up a piece from social media? There's nothing that says on there, actually, this is my opinion, and I've, you know, I'm the bloke down the pub, and, and I'm presenting something which could be terribly damaging as, as fact, but it's actually just my opinion. Both of you... Aren't you enraged that you can't really trust a lot of what you news you consume these days? I think you've hit the nail on the head, Adrian. Um, uh, somebody who, who's been in the industry for 35 years and learning my craft at the BBC, um, I think the de facto was shorthand and then learning libel law. If you had those two under your belt and you could do shorthand, I don't know, 110 words per minute, whatever it was, then or 80 words per minute, that was standard. You know, you could go to court, you could report. We didn't have dictating machines. We had an notepad and a pencil. And we actually put the, the record straight, exactly how it was. I think we're in an era now of what we call citizen journalists. Uh, all very well, but do they actually have the right credentials? Um, 
We know, Adrian, as we both know, uh, print media has been decimated over the last decade. We don't actually have many papers now. So what we have is we have these so-called citizen journalists going out into the community and, and snapping away. Where a photographer, a, a new J trained photographer, someone who's trained in the craft, would get a certain amount of money. But these chaps and lasses will just send their uh, feed or, or, or picture absolutely free of charge just for them to get more numbers uh, or subscriptions on their social media. It actually aggrieves me, to be honest. It really does. Um, and it's dangerous, I think, because we come back to the same question, don't we? Trust. Who would you trust? Somebody who's uh, got the proper accreditation and the qualifications and has the industry backing. Somebody who adheres to the uh, NUJ, for example, the 10-point code of conduct, which is very, very strict. It's very, very heavily regulated. And Seth, as a consumer, I mean, you, you know, you're consuming information from citizen journalists, but would you be happy to... Consult a citizen doctor or a citizen lawyer. <laughs> well, what's your feeling about this? Are we getting a little bit too hot under the collar about it, or or, or not? I think uh, from uh, I mean, obviously, our present company. You know, both of you are friends, and both of you are journalists and broadcasters, and I and I've got a lot of uh, respect and admiration for both for both of you. I think there's an element of elitism that comes in. From my perspective, just because somebody can do shorthand doesn't necessarily mean they're a journalist. Uh, and again, Tony, you know, I'm going to have to disagree with you with love, if I, if I may, okay. where, you know, from my perspective, it's about, you know, what insight that brings in. Yes, you know, sometimes you can tell whether it's regurgitation of news. You can tell sometimes it's fairly biased in terms of the viewpoint. And sometimes you can pick that up. Not everybody can. So definitely the fact that if there's a kite mark and if there's some sort of code of practice or a code of standard that, that people are adhering to, fantastic. In terms of the sector that I belong to, to the two sectors, you know, we've got in terms of education and particularly the skill sector, anybody can become a consultant per se. You know, and from the, from that perspective, somebody can say, you know, I'm a consultant. I can help you grow your business. And we've had that for SMEs. We've had that in our sector. They, you know, we can get you this. We can get you that, and so forth. There's no standard there as such, and that quality mark isn't there. In terms of going back to the radios or going back to community, you know, everybody can set up a media channel now. It's so easy to create your own YouTube channel. It's so easy to create. Uh, to do a podcast like we're doing and get your news out there, get your views out there. But hopefully, hopefully the consumer uh, in most cases will be able to differentiate between the, uh, what a viewpoint is, what a commentary is, and to what real journalism is, which is hopefully unbiased and has got some element of breaks on there or safeguards on there to to make sure the fact that it's informative and, and it gives you a perspective. Tony, how, how, do, do you think that people can differentiate? Because I'm not sure they can. How many people have died as a consequence of postings and, and information about COVID and, you know, the anti-vax brigade and all the rest of it? When you're talking about an opinion, everybody is entitled to an opinion. You know, are Liverpool a better football team than Manchester United or whatever? But when you're talking about issues that affect life and death, don't we need to have some sort of regulation? Don't we need to have the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and all the rest of it? Shouldn't they be regulated in the same way that a newspaper or a radio station or a television station is regulated insofar as the platform is responsible for the content? 
That's interesting, isn't it? Because we do know in the UK for the print media, we've got Impress and Ipso, um, two regulators independently that uh, print media need to uh, adhere to. In terms of broadcasting, of course, again, I come back to Ofcom and the regulator. And sometimes I think mm. with podcasts, it's always uh, nice when you're sitting with mm. somebody who has an opposing view. And I think uh, I've got to agree to disagree. Mm. Um, because when we're talking about journalism, we're actually talking about news gathering, aren't we? We're talking about getting the information from a source, making sure, evaluating. As a journalist, we have certain skill sets. We have to evaluate where we shouldn't. And of course, we come back to the code of conduct. There's uh, no news is good news. There's mm. bad news is always, it is what it is. But there's a danger of sensationalizing bad news. And I think that's where it comes a little bit gray, a little bit tricky. So does a citizen journalist actually have all those skill sets? I don't think he or she does. Mm. What does a genuine qualified broadcaster journalist have? Well, they have those main core areas, which is learning libel law, libel, defamation, mm. slander. You ask any citizen journalist, does he or she know what that is yeah. and how it's implied and what the implications are? I can tell you, I don't think they do. And then, of course, coming back on to um, broadcasting, we're, again, very, very heavily regulated. And uh, and you know this as much as myself, Adrian, many a film, and I know Etonians and guys have come out from Cambridge, great CV, but you know what they didn't have on their CV? was shorthand, and that CV went straight in the bin. It's the de facto, it is the kite mark. You can have everything else and nothing else, but if you've got shorthand on your CV, you're going to get that gig. So talking um, from your perspective now, you know, you're in the education mm. sector and you're in the, um, the domiciliary care sector. How, how well do you feel that those sectors are regulated? I mean, there is, there is regulation in terms of over, uh, if you're a provider. So if you're a training provider, if you're a delivery provider, there's re definitely regulation out there. But if you're a consultant, I'm, what I was talking referring to is people who go and provide a service to others. I mean, anybody can become a consultant. Any can, can, can become a, an expert or, you know, have, say, you know, just go out there and say, I've got expertise and I can help you do this, 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 this. That's the element of that, that I was referring to. But if I go back to the the points that Tony has mentioned, this, there's a, a, a fair amount that I do agree with. From my perspective, you know, this benchmark of shorthand, Pittman shorthand, I tried to learn that many years ago myself. And I thought to myself, is that really the standard for, for now? You know, if I look at, you know, say TikTok or Instagram, you've got people out there who are giving out news. Definitely you can see, you know, you I wouldn't rely on that news. You know, somebody going out there and saying, well, you know, at the moment, we're, you know, we're all talking about East European and Russia and so forth. People out there saying, well, actually, it's the, the prime minister of Pakistan who caused it. You know, he went to, the, to see, Putin and the, you know and all of these sort of things have happened going back to again you know the whole COVID situation TikTok I would say you know stay away from that you know uh, it's entertainment it's not news it's not there to, to do so at the same time for certain things TikTok could be fantastic for how to you know how do you go about doing this how could you so this short sharp learning 30 seconds in a minute you can learn something that's different from getting it from your news you know how do you fix your tie how do you do this how do you do that you know do you are you aware of this a little bit of entertainment here a little bit of dance here fantastic you know that's what that medium's for but if you go and sit to, listen to somebody and he starts talking about you know financial advice or you know you should extract your money from your pension or you can go and buy 
right to, you know, you can remortgage your house and go and get 10 properties and all this sort of stuff, then stay away from that. You go to a reliable source, uh, professional people, financial advisors, whoever it is, and hopefully people have some element of common sense to be able to differentiate that. And that's the, the point that I'm trying to make here. Yeah, you raise a very good point about financial services. Tony, are you going to say something? Yeah, it's, it's interesting as a, as a journalist, um, Twitter seems to be the de facto platform for broadcasters and journalists here in the UK, um, rightly or wrongly. I've come back on Facebook after 12 years. Mm. I was in the oblivion. Nothing's really changed as far as I'm concerned. It's mm. definitely not a news portal. It's not something I would actually trust. Uh, but then I'm being biased because I've obviously I've got my own views based around that. TikTok, yeah, it's a new phenomenon. It's a platform selling services. So it's almost an advertorial platform, isn't it? You know, uh, YouTube, we obviously have, we have so many social media platforms now. We are sport for choice, but it's the individual. Where do they go to, to get their information? You know, is it going to be terrestrial TV? Is it going to be satellite TV? Is it going to be hard, tangible press media? Mm. Or is it going to be one of these platforms? Uh, But again, I think we we come back to the same adage. And the question is, uh, you are sport for choice and you make make your own choices, don't you? Isn't it, Saf, one of the problems with social media that it kind of creates an echo chamber? By that I mean, if you Google or search just for the sake of argument, why vaccines are wrong. If you search and then the algorithms will mean that you will, those are the sort of stories that you will constantly see. So that they actually funnel people down into a into a particular point of view on, on any subject. And they tend to basically be forced to consume information that essentially supports a particular view and reinforces something. And I know something that we've talked about in previous um, podcast has been this business of where you're actually reinforcing a particular view, a particular prejudice. Um, isn't that a problem? Yes or no? It's, it's not necessarily yes or no, but you are right. You know, sometimes you look for things that validate your opinion, your viewpoint, and you know, you look for that evidence. And there's, I think, less and less people who are completely open-minded to say, you know what, I'm going to go into a conversation uh, because I'm open to the conversation. So if I said to Tony, you and I will have a you know, conversation about journalism, but you've got to be able to say, change your mind on this, this, this. And most people don't wouldn't do that. So if I if I was going into a conversation to talk about religion, and somebody said to me, you "Come into this conversation and you know, uh, be open to change your religion or change your view," I, w- I wouldn't do that because that's my faith. That's you know, that's a bit too important for me. So I think we can we need to be able to say, yeah, well, uh, these views are interested in me. This is what I believe. I'm here to necessarily give you a point. I'm not here to persuade you or to get you to change your mind, but I am here to for you to listen and understand what my viewpoint is and getting that balance right and it's, sometimes we ha- we have that position where we're trying to win over and we want, we're trying to have the last word on every single aspect of it and I think you know we need to be able to understand each other and be able to work with each other without really offending and you know don't take offense personally but don't necessarily go out there and offend others and I think that's where that ground is for me. To close it out and, and, and obviously your expertise is extremely valuable on this particular issue uh, Tony we're podcasting And uh, we hope that people enjoy the podcast and that if they do, they'll tell us that they like us and that they will subscribe. But but to finish off, a lot of people are podcasting. There's an awful lot of it about at the moment of different levels of quality. I, I just wonder, both of you, how do you measure whether a podcast that you've been involved in is good or not? I'll tell you what my test is. 
I call it the Radio 4 test. And I'm not saying that we all, you know, we always reach it. We do our best with this wonderful series with, with sufferers. I'm not biased, of course. But I use the Radio 4 test. I listen to a, a broadcast and I say, is this something that Radio 4 might be prepared to broadcast? That's my simple test. What's your test of a good podcast, Tony? It's interesting, isn't it? And if we look at podcasting over the years, uh, I think it's uh, 10 years or so in the UK. So it's not a new phenomenon. Mm. But what we do have, gentlemen, is, uh, again, choices. So, for example, we, in the previous uh, podcast, we were talking about uh, different radio stations providing different services, Mm. different programming. Well, let's talk about a station, for example, a local station that has a large Palestinian community, for example, Mm. and the atrocities, uh, for example, in the Middle East. Mm. Where do he or she go? Well, there's a niche market, isn't there? There's somebody providing that particular medium uh, where he and she can listen to, and that's more reflective of their beliefs. For example, on on mainstream radio, certainly uh, community radio stations here in the UK. To talk about Kashmir, for example, it's a no-no. I mean, even local community stations they won't be allowed because the regulation is so, so stiff and harsh. Uh, they have to be very careful. And I've seen many, many uh, uh, citizen journalists and broadcasters, unfortunately, who have gone down that slippery road because they haven't done their due diligence. They haven't checked the sources. But look, podcast is great. You can be you can be in the shower, you can be walking in business, you can be in the tube and you listen to something that you want. It's so, so, so tailor-made. Seth, so you, um, you say you came to entrepreneurship light. Um, I, I'm not sure that that might be true, but it also means that you had a lot of experience to bring to that role. You, you've also said that you came to podcasting fairly late. Why, why, why did why did you feel that podcasting was something you wanted to do? I fully agree with Tony in terms of, uh, you know, it's been here a decade plus. There's, uh, and again, you, what you find is that uh, it seems like the moment everybody's jumping on the bad wagon. And when I thought of the idea, I thought, you know what, people are going to say, here's another one just jumping on the bad wagon. Why is he doing this? What's the purpose? And for me, I only went into it, firstly, on the basis that am I going to be able to add value to what I currently do? Am I going to add value to the listener? Is this something that I will enjoy as well? And is this something that is going to give me an element of growth? Uh, and development personally and then really understanding how does that fit into the ecosystem so I was probably challenging myself more in terms of I don't want to just do this because everybody else is doing it it sounds like a good thing to do so you know we've maintained it we're on our series three now Uh, we've changed uh, in terms of our style of how we do things you know used to be you and I having a conversation or we used now we're bringing in professionals we're bringing in people who've got a who've got expertise who you know and and really having a conversational uh, conversation which is what this uh, canny conversation is about but it is about the cause itself it's about hopefully adding value to the listener it's also really from my perspective going out and talking about topics in a in in a in a manner that really you know opens my mind but also at the same time, hopefully, you know, for the listener, they're getting something out of it. And if I can't do that, then I might as well go home and leave it. And that's for me, that that's the test in my adding value to that or to the audience that we've got. We've had a, a tremendous half hour. It would be remiss not to thank Tony for his contribution. You're welcome. And it would be remiss also not to remind our listeners that at least at the time that this podcast was made, Tony is on the radio daily. Monday to Friday between uh, three and six. Uh, Radio XL, um, drive time, 
program. Saf, any final comments to Tony? Tony, thank you again for all your support. I do, you know, obviously, you know, respect and admire in terms of what you're doing. You know, you're a long-time friend, although you've yeah. been out, uh, out in the wilderness for 12 years on Facebook, but you're still a very close associate and we've been in contact for that for that year and I really appreciate all, all the wisdom knowledge that you've contributed uh, to, to this uh, program and uh, the last program as well. And can I just add to that, you know, it is a little bit uncanny when you see, or certainly when you're confronting uh, a CEO of a, of a big uh, group of companies. And I think that's also key, isn't it, Saf, you know, as a CEO of the Pathway Group, I think this podcast is so reminiscent of what you're providing. And mm. I think when people, not only visually watching, but certainly listening, they're saying, mm. well, actually, you know what, this chap has actually taken his time and he's actually talking to me and that resonates where many of CEOs I'm sure you've had the same Adrian you get them into a radio studio or a broad, broadcast studio uh, and, and many have, have actually quibbled at the, uh, the be in front of a microphone or a TV camera so uh, so it's a saying, get out while you're winning. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and we can't do much better than that, for, uh, uh, but I'm sure it's true. We're going to now curtail this canny conversation with a cause. We hope that you uh, have enjoyed listening. We hope that you'll give us any feedback. We certainly had a lot of feedback for the first broadcast, which featured Tony. And uh, we hope you uh, stay safe until the next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this Canny Conversation with the Cause. These conversations are based upon the Canny Bites books by Safras Ali, available on Amazon. To find out more, go online and visit Saf's website, pathwaygroup.co.uk, or join him on social media. He can be contacted at safras at pathwaygroup.co.uk. Canny Conversations with a Cause are produced by Pathway Group, who have a mission to change lives through skills and work. And they do this through upskilling and reskilling individuals by getting them firstly into sustainable employment and tackling the talent and skills issues commonly faced by businesses. In addition to their core skills and employability business, Pathway Group also actively promote diversity, equality and inclusion and have initiated causes such as the BAME Apprentice Network, the BAME Apprenticeship Awards and the Festival of Apprenticeships. This is a 1386 audio production.